Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. I love to read the predictions of men from days gone by of how and when the world might end. Here's some gems. In 960 AD, Bernard of Thuringia, he was a German theologian, he calculated that 992 would be the year as the most likely year for the world's end. And as that time approached, panic was widespread. Everybody freaked out, but nothing happened. Then German astrologer, do you catch a theme here with the Germans? German astrologer Johann Stoffler, he predicted an overwhelming flood on February the 20th of 1524. Well, believers started building arcs. Maybe they were related to Ken Ham. I don't know. But they, they started building arcs. And one man is said to have been trampled to death by a mob that was trying to actually get on his boat. And he got trampled to death. When nothing happened, the calculations, of course, were revised. And a new date was given of 1588. And then that year passed without any unusual rainfall. A man by the name of Solomon Eccles was jailed in London's Bridewell prison. He was striding through the Smithfield market carrying a pan of blazing sulfur on top of his head, all while proclaiming, yeah, that's boldness, isn't it? Claiming doom and destruction, but he's got this pan of sulfur on his head. Well, of course, the end of the world did not come, but the Great Fire of London did a year later in 1666. After studying both the Bible and all the messages, the mystical messages that he thought he found in the Great Pyramid. This man, Charles Taze Russell in 1874, founder of what became known today as the cult, the Jehovah's Witnesses, he concluded that the second coming of Christ had already taken place. He declared that the people had 40 years or until 1914, until 1914 to enter into his faith, or they would be destroyed. That's how he gained a following of gullible people. He scared them to death. Because people use fear to gain control over others. And if you never learned anything else from history class, learn this simple lesson. There have been men throughout history that have used mass hysteria events and purposely inciting fear to gain power and control over the people. This type of thing happens. Later, Russell went on and he modified the date to very soon after 1914. Well, I'm still waiting for very soon. Very soon, 100 years later. Herbert W. Armstrong, he declared that January the 7th of 1972 was without a doubt, he said, nice words, was without a doubt the date to watch. But the failure of his prediction did not diminish his zeal. The 16th century seer Nostradamus, at least he went in a different direction. He is said to have favored 1999 as the year of the Martian invasion. So he brought Martians into the midst. 
You know, God really doesn't want us to be ignorant of the end times. And it's, it's a shame that so many in the church today have bought into the idea that God doesn't want us to know these things. But the difference is we approach it from the scriptures and with the understanding that God has told us everything we need to know and should know in his word. With a simple understanding of how language works, we can understand with both clarity and accuracy how the world is going to end. And if that's not true, if that little statement that I just said is not true, then I don't see any other purpose for the book of Revelation being written. But there is a purpose, isn't there? See, there is. Robert Murray McShane saw this. He was a Scottish preacher who pastored for seven and a half years. Oh, he had a short ministry, but he burned brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. He only pastored for seven and a half years until he suddenly died at the age of 29. But I want you guys to listen. Listen to what he said. In one of his sermons, he explained why people should fear God. And here's what he said, quote, If sinners could see that there is nothing but the hand of God staying back the fury of his anger, and that only for a time that there is nothing but the good pleasure of God keeping any of them out of hell, if they could see the same hand which balances the earth upon nothing, the hand that wields the thunderbolt, the hand that darkens the sun with the ominous eclipse, that very hand is pledged to destroy every Christless soul, Oh, who would be able to bear the sight? The stoutest hearted among the wicked would find their knees become weak as water. They would cry to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The terribleness of the wrath is always in proportion to the might of the being who is angry. The wrath of a child is contemptible because it has no power to put it into an execution. The wrath of a lion is terrible because it excels in its strength. And when the sea is lashed into fury by the storm, it is fearful to look upon it. And there's so much power and envy one of those surges that it dashes upon the rocks. The wrath of the king, says the Bible, is terrible. But ah, what must the wrath be of the king of kings? For he is almighty. When the almightiness of God is roused up to destroy, oh, who can stand? Who can tell the dreadfulness of being trodden in the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God? This is our somber subject for this morning and the rest of Revelation 14. This is not a message that most people want to hear. This is a very difficult, difficult subject. But we go through it because it's the Word of God and it has value. In verses 6 through 13 of Revelation 14, we saw the three angels announce judgment. But now we're about to see that judgment carried out. And it's not going to be a pretty picture as we walk through this text. Verses 10 and 11 describe the fate of the lost, those without the righteousness of Christ, those who take the mark of the beast. Their fate will be certain. Their fate will be everlasting torment in the lake of fire with no rest, day or night. And we left off with verse 12, the same warning of scripture. These words will be a great encouragement to the tribulation saints alive, living in the great tribulation with faith in Jesus Christ. And it says specifically, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. So many are going to die for their faith. Others are going to need to hide 
There will be incredible need for patience and endurance during this time. But these tribulation saints are assured in this text that even though they may suffer for, for a few years, their end is better than those who accept the easy way out and worship the beast. Now, during the great tribulation, the saints of God will need patience as they live out the commandments of God, living in trust of the Savior and his return to the earth. Verse 13 it builds off this. Read it with me. It says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's an amazing text, isn't it? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Remember that we are talking about tribulation saints. And John hears a voice from heaven, still on earth at this point, but hearing a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are the dead in the second half of the tribulation who die with faith in Jesus Christ. Blessed are the dead, words that are in total contrast to everything we stand for and think of today. You see, this is saying, hey, they may be killed for their faith, but the rewards they will have in glory are something that no one will ever be able to take away. And once they are taken home to be with Christ after having stood for their faith in Christ, they're going to be able to rest. Praise God. This is the witness of the Spirit of God, that their works done for the Lord will be rewarded before Christ. So the teaching is, stand for Jesus Christ now, and the rewards come later. See, if you want to hallmark life now, and be bored to death with the movies, by the way, if you want to hallmark life now, you're not understanding the Christian message. There's a rest and peace in knowing Christ, but it doesn't come from having a nice house, a nice car, and a nice home, and comfort. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ. It comes from walking with Jesus Christ. That's where peace is found. That's where rest is found. Didn't Christ himself say, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest. See, I believe this. I believe you can spot a Christian who has the peace and rest of Christ present in their life, and it can only come by walking with Jesus Christ. And it could take you through any storm, even the storms we see in our day, still holding on to Him with the joy of the Lord in us. Believers during the tribulation who take a stand against the satanic kingdom of the beast, those who will take a stand against the false worship of the Antichrist, will be rewarded, it says in the text, all throughout eternity. This is why verse 13 says, they will be blessed from now on. It's the same reason I keep telling Christians now, today, in our time, to take a stand against the conditioning of the world, because that's exactly what's happening out there. The conditioning of the world, the brainwashing, because Christians today are being brainwashed by the media, by everything that's coming our way online, to believe the lies of a reprobate world taking us further and further and further away from Jesus Christ. The only thing you can take with you to heaven, there's only one thing you can take with you to heaven. The only thing you can take with you to glory is your witness, your testimony, how you stood for Jesus Christ, your good works done by the power of the Lord living in you now. It's all you can take. The rest is just garbage. 
Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 25, I love this verse so much. It says, likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Now, if that verse seems a little bit confusing, well, let's back up. Let's put it into context. We can do that. Take it with the verse that comes right before verse 24. It says, some men's sins are clearly evident. That changes things. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident in those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So what is Paul saying with these beautiful words? He's telling us that it is hard. It is very hard. It's impossible to judge the heart of another man. It's impossible. Sometimes you can see the sin on other people right away. And he's saying, sometimes it follows. Sometimes you see their sin later. Sometimes it follows. Maybe even after they die. Maybe even after they die, you learn about the sins of other people. Sometimes Paul's saying, we look at the good works of someone and it's evident. It's obvious. You spot it right away. You can tell that they're walking with Jesus Christ. But other times he's saying the good works follow and they're hidden until later in time. Meaning again that you don't see the good works they do right away. See, God doesn't save anybody by their works. Of course he doesn't. But he absolutely does reward us for works done by the power of his spirit living in us. Our works, good or bad, you know, they're like tin cans that are tied to a dog's tail. You can't get away from them. You can't. They follow you. They follow you. They will follow us all the way to the judgment seat of Christ. So be thankful. Be thankful that God is the judge and be thankful that God judges the counsels of the heart. He's not leaving it up to someone else to judge your life. He's going to judge based on the counsels of the heart. And that's a beautiful promise that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. See, this is part of the message back in Revelation 14. The works done on earth by the tribulation saints, they will go with them into the very presence of God. There will be an eternal reward because the Lord will repay his people for the work they do for him. See, God is not overlooking your suffering. God's not sitting back overlooking everything you're going through. God is not overlooking everything you do for him now that you're a part of the family of God. And to the tribulation saints, the message is, it's far better to be dead at the hands of the Antichrist than to have his favor. Far better. And if they should die for their faith, then glory to God, because then they'll be released once and for all from the persecution and the torture and all the trials of serving God faithfully during this great tribulation. They'll be delivered into the glorious presence of the Lord. This is going to be a blessing. Notice this. It's a beatitude, isn't it? It's the second of seven beatitudes that are contained in this book. The tribulation saints being faithful unto death will not be because they have legalistic hearts or legalistic minds, but instead it will simply be a representation of their devotion to Jesus Christ because they are confident that he who begins a good work in them will complete it. See, they believe the words of Scripture. 
And notice the contrast. In verse 11, it said, those who take the mark of the beast, they're not going to have any rest. They're never going to be at peace. They're never going to have rest. But those in Christ, what are they going to have? Rest. It would be better to reign with Jesus Christ forever than with the Antichrist for a few short years. Now, last week, I mentioned Michelangelo. His final work was called the Rondini Pieta. It's a piece that he worked on for 10 years, but he ended up breaking the block. And one of his contemporary artists said at the time, he said about this last final block that Michelangelo worked on, he said it was so full of impurities, so hard that the sparks flew up from underneath his chisel. And one of Michelangelo's followers rescued this sculpture from the trash. He got it out of the garbage, basically. And this sculpture, it never had the beauty of his other art. You can kind of see, if you remember the pictures of his other art from last week, they were beautiful, well carved out. But this one kind of looks like maybe I did it, okay? It's not that great. It really isn't. It bears the marks of Michelangelo's chisel, but none of the beauty of his earlier works. And it leads many to wonder, why? What, what happened? What was the problem? But it highlights the dilemma and the unpredictable nature of working with stone. Because, listen, the stone wants to be a stone, but the artist wants it to be art. And it's the same dilemma we all face under the great creator's hand. He wants to chisel us into the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to do in your life, Christian. That's exactly what he's trying to do. And the stone of our lives either submits to the chipping or it resists and says, no, I don't want to do that. And if our lives submit the features of our Savior, they begin to emerge and we start to look like Jesus. But if our lives resist and continue to resist, there will become a day when God will let the stone be the stone. And he'll not be able to do much more work on you until you're in glory. So let God chip away at you. Let him work in your life, a thing of beauty that reflects the Savior. See, as a Christian, I'm talking to Christians here. As a Christian, you can either let the hard chisel of life transform you into the likeness of Jesus Christ, or you can become broken, a distorted image of what Christ intends you to be. Let him chisel. Let him chisel. Verse 14 in your text. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on a cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud... First time I read that last week, when I, I always start looking at the text on Sunday night for the next week, I, I didn't have my glasses on. I thought it said popsicle, and I had to go get my glasses. It's not popsicle, it's sharp sickle is what it says. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. I want you to think about this. The same Savior that came in meekness as a baby, as a servant, in humility, in gentleness, seeking to save the lost, suffering wrath for sinners, he's going to come again, isn't he? At a second advent. And when he comes again, it's going to be in power and it's going to be in glory and it's going to be to conquer and it's going to be to judge and it's going to be to rescue the righteous people of God from wrath, to reap the harvest and reign on earth. And the hour is fast approaching, fast approaching, even now when Jesus Christ will return from heaven with power and glory. 
And on that day, every misconception, every lie about Jesus will be confronted because the whole world is going to stand face to face with the one true Christ. And the world is going to have a better understanding of who this Savior is as judge and conquering king. John was given a preview of the coming events, the gathering of the remnant of Israel on Mount Zion at the second coming of Christ. He told us about the fall of Babylon, and now he's summarizing the final judgments yet to come before the second coming of Christ. In this grain harvest of verses 14 through 16, they preview the seven bold judgments that we're going to look at in chapters 15 to 16. And the grape harvest, starting in verse 17, pictures the final battle at the return of Christ coming up in chapter 16 and 19. And after the three angels pass by with heavenly messages, with the final warnings from heaven, verse 14 tells us that John looked, he looked up, and behold, what did he see? It says, a white cloud, and on that cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Now John recognized this. He understood what was happening. John recognized the image of a man with a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. Throughout Scripture, the cloud represents the glory of God. People talk about it as the Shekinah glory of God. That's not entirely accurate because the Scriptures never really say Shekinah. They just talk about the glory of God present in a cloud. It's the physical form of divine power that reminded God's people that he was with them, that no matter what they were going through, God was still with them. And we see this glory of God all throughout Scripture. In fact, this is one of the books that I'm working on right now. It's about three-quarters done. It's been sitting at three-quarters done for a couple years. I took this little church known as Pioneer Baptist. Maybe you've heard of it, and I haven't been able to complete this book. But it's a great study. And we see this glory of God in Exodus 13, 21. It says, And the Lord went before them by day and where? A pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. So here the glory of God appeared in the pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. But what was the purpose? Who cares? Why did God do this? What was the purpose? Well, it was to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, to lead them into the promised land. The glory of God appeared in this cloud from which he spoke to his people. And the cloud also rested, rested on the tabernacle, rested in the temple, reminding Israel that God, that God in his grace was with his people. God was present. God had never abandoned them. God would lead them. God would protect them. And in the New Testament, the cloud also represented the presence of God's power and glory. What do we see in the New Testament? Well, when Christ was transfigured on the mountain, do you remember Matthew 17, 5 says this? It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And then again, when Christ ascended from the Mount of Olives, Acts 1.9, I'm about to connect a whole bunch of dots, so stick with me. Acts 1.9 says that a cloud received him. This is the same mountain that Christ is going to return to. Same mountain. Zechariah 14.4, it teaches us this. You've heard me read it before. And in that day, his feet will stand on where? The Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. And half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it 
toward the south. Don't miss the completeness of Scripture. Do not miss the unity of Scripture. Don't miss the unified witness of the Word of God. It's beautiful when you study it. It is absolutely the most beautiful thing you'll ever see in your life. The glory of God present in the Old Testament in Christ. He left from the Mount of Olives and He's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And it's very, very, very fitting that the second coming of Christ in judgment is seen in Scripture as the Son of Man riding on a white cloud. You remember what the prophet Daniel said from so long ago, from chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming where? With the clouds of heaven. And then you get to the New Testament where you see that Jesus quoted that prophetic statement. He didn't leave it alone. He went back and dug into it and said, hey, that prophetic statement from Daniel, that's about me. He said he applied it to himself and he predicted a second coming in Mark 13, 26, when he said, then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Key in on that phrase in verse 14 back in Revelation, the son of man. It's a clear reference to Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about God's coming kingdom. It's used often in the Old Testament as a Hebrew idiom to refer to the humanity of, of a person. That's why in Daniel, and we see it referring to Daniel when he was trembling in the presence of the angels. And in chapter 8, verse 17 of Daniel, the angel referred to Daniel as the son of man. And Jesus then used this title all throughout the Gospels to refer to his own human attributes 25 times. If you don't think it refers to Christ, then I have a question for you. 25 times alone in the book of Matthew, it refers to Christ this way, 25 times. But here's where I want you to make the connection. And here's where we connect these things together. The Son of Man calls attention to the Incarnation. God becoming man to die for sin and to rise from the dead. But where do we see him in verse 14? On the cloud, indicating to us he is above right now in heaven, in glory. And it is only this Savior who came the first time as a baby and lived as a man who is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. And as God the Son, this exalted God-man has the right to rule over the nations, and on his head will be a golden crown. This is Christ in his glorified state and in his royal dignity, and in his hand will be a sharp sickle. Now, again, not a popsicle, a sharp sickle. It's a reference to a harvest, something that easily they would have understood back then in the first century. As a field of wheat would ripen up, all that hard work would be lost if you didn't harvest the crop. I mean, why would you plant? Why would you take care of these crops all year long and then let it just go to waste? It had to be harvested on time. The day of the harvest could not be put off. Why? Well, because in Scripture, what do we see? All the way back in Genesis 3, see, God began to unfold his plan of salvation when he promised to defeat the serpent and to save a people through the woman's seed. And in the thousands of years after, God was doing something. God's plan continued to unfold in the world. And the covenant promises given to Abraham passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob, passed down to Judah, then to the house of David, and finally to the person of who? Jesus Christ. By the end of the tribulation, the world is going to be ripe, very ripe for the harvest. And that is all that we're witnessing today. The field is getting a little more ripe, a little more ripe, a little more ready 
for that end time harvest. Now, wearing a victor's crown and a sickle in his hand, the Son of Man will respond to the angel coming out of the temple, crying out, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. No doubt here that the angel is a representative of God the Father entrusted with the message of judgment. And chapter 11 told us the temple of God in heaven was opened and this angel came out of the temple. And this is something you see all throughout chapter 14. These angels announcing the judgment of God coming in verses 6, 8, and 9. And it's kind of interesting if you're reading this in the Greek here, the Greek word translated as ripe, it means dried, it means withered, it means dried up like a a dried fruit. The picture given is of a fruit or a vegetable so ripe that it's actually shrunken and it's starting to dry up, suggesting that the condition of the unregenerate men on this world has become overripe because judgment, God's judgment is due. It's overdue. See, this is teaching us that God in his mercy has delayed his judgment as long as he can. He's delayed as long as possible. God is merciful. God is patient. But there's coming a time when he's going to say to the world, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And on that day, the harvest of the world will arrive. And that is what we see in verse 15. Instantly, the Son of Man, he thrusts in his sickle and he executes his judgment. And like an overripe field that calls for the immediate attention of the owner, the evil of mankind will call for swift and decisive judgment. God is patient and kind, but one day the earth will feel the sharp edge of his coming judgment. Julia Ward Howe, she was perhaps the most famous American woman of the 19th century. She wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, most people don't know this. Her famous song was set to the tune of John Brown's Body. Not the best song. She wrote the song after visiting Union military camps near Washington, D.C. in 1861 after the American Civil War had begun. And Julia was familiar with chapter 14 of Revelation, and she took the word pictures from that song directly from our text. You see, she saw the events of her day as a fulfillment of the gruesome prophecy of a horrible bloodbath between the forces of righteousness and the powers of darkness. But no matter how much you love this song, the Civil War is not the meaning of the end of Revelation 14. It's just not. It's a terrible warning about God's coming wrath unleashed upon the wickedness of the world. So let's take a look. And these are our final verses. These are some tough, tough verses this morning. Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. The wheat harvest gave us the sudden judgment of God. The grape harvest is showing us the severity of that judgment. It's going to be bad. Notice that another angel came out from above, out of that 
heavenly temple. And he was instructed by yet another angel coming out from the altar to gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes, it says, are fully ripe. But the picture of ripe here is changes. It changes in the wording. It's not withered or dry fruit. This word for ripe gives us the idea that the grapes are now at the best point. At the best point. When you want to grab them. When you want to get them. The right point to be harvested. Almost bursting with juice. Time has come for the harvest. And so the angel obeys, thrusting the sickle into the earth, gathering the harvest, and threw into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now this angel coming out of the temple from the altar with power over fire, probably a reference to the altar in the temple of heaven where the prayers of the saints are offered. That's what we saw back in chapter 8, verse 3. The idea is that this angel is acting in response to the prayers of the saints for the divine judgment of God upon the wickedness of the world. You harvest grapes right at their peak. And in the first century, they would then take the grapes and they would put them into a large vat. And the word picture here is pretty strong. And usually, they would carve these vats into rock and connect it to a lower part by a narrow little channel. As the clusters of grapes were crushed underfoot in the upper chamber, the juice would flow into the second vat so that it would be collected in jars or wineskins, and then it would be fermented. But I want you to look at what John is telling us. The grapes were thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God, verse 19. You see, the earth had yielded a crop of unbelievers, and at the end of the tribulation, they're going to be judged. And the spurting of the grape juice from under the bare feet of those treading grapes in the wine press is compared to the spurting of blood on this awful time of judgment. And then in verse 20, the wine press was trampled outside the city. Notice it says, outside the city. Now this is an obvious reference to the city of Jerusalem. Blood came out of the wine press. Up to the horse's bridles, about four to five feet deep for 1,600 furlongs, almost 200 miles. Almost 200 miles. The blood will splatter four to five feet deep, even pouring out and flowing that deep in some places in the valley of this final battle. Now, the battle pictured in this vision is going to be huge. It's going to be massive. Bloodier than our imaginations can take us. Bloodier than even Netflix can take us, okay? It's going to be bad. This will be a massive slaughter and loss of human life. Nothing in earth's history has even come remotely close. This is the final battle of the Antichrist and the kings of the earth before the millennium. And the grape harvest, it represents people who are going to gather together for war. But then the question comes as you look at Revelation 14, what valley are we talking about? What valley are we talking about? Well, let's go to the Old Testament because the Old Testament helps us that the final battle will happen near Jerusalem. Let me show you this. It says in Joel 3, starting in verse 12, it says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle. Look at the wording. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Same thing we're talking about. The valley of Jehoshaphat, the Kidron Valley, which is on the eastern edge of Jerusalem, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. 
It's not that big of a valley. Remember Zechariah 14.4. I just read it to you guys just a bit ago. We're going to read it again because we can do that here. Here it comes. And in that day, his feet, whose feet? Christ's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it towards the south. Revelation 16, 16 is going to tell us about the battle of Armageddon, not by Jerusalem, but to the north, to the north, way up. This here in Revelation 14 is talking about the part of the battle that Christ returned by Jerusalem. See, the armies of the nations are going to be gathered, and it's not just going to be by Jerusalem, and it's not just going to be up to the north. The whole world's going to come together to fight. It's going to be bad, real bad. And it's not going to be just by Jerusalem. It's not going to be just to the north in the valley of Megiddo. The blood will be flowing from God's enemies all throughout the land. It's going to be everywhere. Revelation 14, I believe, is referring to outside the city of Jerusalem. But blood will come out of the winepress of God's wrath for a distance of 200 miles. And much of this action is also going to take place up to the north in the valley of Megiddo, better known as the Battle of Armageddon in northern Israel. God is going to put to death large numbers of people. These are common images that we see from the Old Testament for the coming battle of Armageddon, for the coming of God's wrath and judgment. Isaiah 63, it's another fascinating text. It it pictures God as the divine judge. God is this divine judge, and he's stained red from the winepress of his wrath. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 63. It says, I have trodden the winepress alone. This is what he's talking about, the second coming. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Verse 6 of Isaiah 63 goes on to say this. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And then Joel 3 Again, look at how united the Word of God is, the complete testimony of the Word of God. It's almost like God was trying to communicate what's going to happen. Joel 3 is more specific. It says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes again in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. And the Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. The armies of the world will be gathered for judgment. This death and destruction of the enemies of God will mean rescue for the surviving remnant of Israel. It will mean the deliverance into the kingdom of God for those with faith in Jesus Christ. Christ and his armies will return to destroy the Antichrist and all those gathered with him to help him. Then the King of kings and the Lord of lords will establish, praise be to God, his eternal, everlasting kingdom on earth. In 2015, in the terrorist attack down in San Bernardino, there was an attempted bombing. 14 people lost their lives. 14 people were killed in the shootings, and another 22 were seriously injured. But one 27-year-old knows exactly how she survived this terrorist attack. 
Her life was spared, not because the shooter saw her and just turned away, or not because she was just fortunate, but because she was sitting with her co-worker, 45-year-old Shannon Johnson, and listened to her own words, her own account of what happened that morning. She said, Wednesday morning at 10.55 a.m., we were seated next to each other at a table, joking, just sitting there joking about how we thought the large clock on the wall might be broken because time seemed to be moving so slowly. I would have never guessed that only five minutes later, we'd be huddled next to each other under the same table, using a fallen chair as a shield from over 60 rounds of bullets being fired across the room. I will always remember, she writes, his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, she said, I will always remember him saying, I got you. I got you. See, Shannon shielded her with his own body, taking the bullets, saving her life. He took all the bullets in his body that were headed her way. And of course, he lost his life, laying down his own life. He became a shield so that his own friend might live. And that is exactly, precisely what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He shielded us from the wrath of an almighty God. In Romans 5, 9, Paul testified this. He said, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through who? Him. And again, he told the church at Thessalonica in chapter 5, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1 of that same letter, Paul labels it as the wrath to come, the wrath of God to come during the tribulation. But for those who have put on the righteousness of Christ by faith, we're not given to that wrath. We're not given to that wrath. We've been shielded by his death for us. He took the wrath. Christ will never leave us. Christ will never forsake us. Praise be to God. And as a child of God, you have been given by the grace of God the freedom now, the freedom to choose righteousness in our condition. See, empowered now by the Spirit of God, we've been set free from the penalty of sin and given the ability as a gift by his grace to live for Christ according to his righteousness. In Romans 6, Paul stated... Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, use the freedom given you to serve Jesus Christ. Use that freedom in Christ to serve him. Because even though we've been spared the wrath of God, we each must still give an account for how we used our time, our talents, and our abilities for Jesus Christ. There's a joy to be found. There's a rest in Christ to be found. There's a reward to be gained in glory and a savior to be loved for what he's done for you, for me. Paul said so long ago in Ephesians 3, and we'll end with this. He said, now to him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, 
please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. Pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.